yourself sit comfortably and listen not so much to remember anything no quiz at the end but just to listen as a kind of meditation and notice if whatever is said resonates with something that you know to be true in yourself as a reminder of something that's of value for you to carry the rest let it go so since it's wildly springtime and has been for a month or two here which is awfully nice having come from the east coast where you know it's still frozen and then there's mud for a long time and finally spring and to get spring in February and March April is beautiful Um, I want to talk about the tending the garden of the heart and I'd like to start with a story um, that's a bedtime story I used to read to my daughter um, from Arnold Lobel, for those of you who know the stories about Frog and Toad. Um, so you can just listen, then you can go to sleep after this if you like. <laughs> and it goes like this. Frog was in his garden, and Toad came walking by. What a fine garden you have, Frog, he said. Yes, said Frog, it's very nice, but it was hard work. I wish I had a garden, said Toad. Here are some flower seeds. Plant them in the ground, said his friend Frog, and soon you will have a garden. How soon, asked Toad. (laughs) You know, this is us, right? Quite soon, said Frog. My daughter told me I shouldn't read this because I'm not patient enough, but I said, quite soon, said Frog. So Toad ran home. He planted the flower seeds. Now seed, said Toad, start growing. (laughs) Toad walked up and down a few times. The seeds did not start to grow. Toad put his head close to the ground and said loudly, Okay, now seeds, start growing. Toad looked at the ground again. The seeds did not start to grow. Toad put his head very close to the ground and shouted, Seeds, start growing. Frog came running up the path. What's all this noise, he asked. My seeds will not grow, said Toad. You're shouting too much, said Frog. The poor (laughs) seeds are afraid to grow. My seeds are afraid to grow, asked Toad. Of course, said Frog. Leave them alone for a few days. Let the sun shine on them. Let the rain fall on them. Soon your seeds will start to grow. That night, Toad looked out his window. Drat, said Toad. My seeds have not started to grow. They must be afraid of the dark. So Toad went out to his garden with some candles. I will read the seeds a story, said Toad. Then they will not be afraid. Toad read a very long story to his seeds. All the next day, Toad sang songs to his seeds in the rain. And all the next day, Toad read poems to his seeds. And all the next day, Toad played music for his seeds. Toad looked at the ground. The seeds still did not start to grow. What shall I do, cried Toad. These must be be the most frightened seeds in the whole world. (laughs) Then Toad felt very tired, and he fell asleep. Toad, Toad, wake up, said Frog. Look at your garden. Toad looked at his garden. Little green plants were coming up out of the ground. At last, shouted Toad, my seeds have stopped being afraid to grow. And now you will have a nice garden too, said Frog. Yes, said Toad, but you are right, Frog. 
it was very hard work. <laughs> so here we are, you know, and um, coming to sit in meditation and try to learn how to meditate, which can also feel like very hard work, you know, and you're trying to fix yourself and change yourself and so forth. You go to the gym and you go to therapy and then you meditate and all that stuff and hope that it helps. Um, yeah. Good luck. Right? We just finished this long retreat, the two-month and one-month um, spring silent retreat, and it was quite beautiful to watch people leave. Um, because at the end of the retreat, we call it the Vipassana facelift, basically. <laughs> People who came in with shoulders up to here and a lot of stress and confusion and conflict and so forth, by the time their weeks of practice had finished, and it almost didn't matter what happened. Some of them had kind of glorious, great openings to body of light and so forth, and others were doing kind of down in the depths of healing work and remembering the traumas of their past and somehow bringing forgiveness and compassion to it all. It almost didn't matter. Somehow the level of kindness, compassion and attention repeatedly over and over worked a kind of magic for almost everyone. I mean, I think of a woman who was there whose parents were immigrants to this country and whose younger brother was autistic. And their parents pinned all their hopes on her. She was supposed to be a famous doctor or something. And she didn't live up to their expectations. And she felt terrible about herself. And I said, how long have you felt terrible about yourself? She said, well, my, since my brother was born. And that was when she was two years old. And um, a lot of suffering. But somehow at the end of it, she had released that whole sense that she wasn't good enough and she was supposed to be somebody other than who she was. And she left and there was a sense of lightness to her step and graciousness that we all have in us, but that we lose. It required, as spiritual practice does, a kind and devoted attention, not so much to get somewhere, reading that story, from frog and toad, but rather to attend so that the body, when it's tight and contracted and so forth, can in its own way begin to open, so that the heart, which has its unfinished business of the past, can have the space to release and love more fully or more deeply, so that the mind, which gets filled with all the things that the mind does, as you know, um, and it has no pride, it will do it over and over, um, <laughs> that the mind can get quieted a bit and we can see afresh. In the teachings of the Buddha from many years ago, early one morning, as the story is written, while out on his alms round, the Buddha approached in the spring a plowing field owned by a rich Brahmin who was distributing food to all the workers. And when the Brahmin saw the Buddha, he kind of dismissed him and said, 
I work, O monk. I plow and sow, and having worked the fields, I eat. You too should plow and sow, and then you can eat. You know, don't be a beggar, basically. And the Buddha replied, I too plow and sow, and having done so, I eat. And the Brahmin said, you claim to be a plowman, but I see no plow. Tell me, what kind of plowing is it you do? And the Buddha replied, trust or faith is the seed, composure the rain, mindfulness is my plow and yoke, compassion is my guide pole, and mind is the harness. Wakefulness is the plow blade, well guarded in action and in speech. I use truth to weed and cultivate release. Wise effort is the oxen drawing the plow steadily toward freedom without regret. This is how I plow, and it bears the fruit of deathlessness, of freedom. Whoever plows in this way will become free of all the sorrows of the heart. And so the Brahmin said, Ah, oh, I see you really, uh, you are, you know, you really do work the fields. You are indeed. And he said he, he was going to offer food. And as the story goes on, he had them bring this fine food and put it into the bowl of the Buddha. And as it touched the metal of the bowl, the alms bowl, it hissed and it all, like steam, and it all kind of flew out of the bowl. Um, and if any of you are old farmers, you'll understand why. Because um, if you plow a furrow in a field, at the end of that furrow, if you were to touch the plow, it's very hot, cutting through the earth. And so in the symbolism, anyway, of the story, this was his bowl, and he had done his plowing, and you couldn't even put food in it because it would all, you know, steam out of there. And the Brahmin said, okay, dude, you know, I get it. You've done your plowing. Recently, this Saturday, a good friend of mine, Sultrim Alioni, who is an American Tibetan nun, Lama Sultrim, who I've known for almost 40 years, taught a day here of the practice of turning difficulties into awakening through visualizing them as demons or some kind of visualized form of a being that wants something and then feeding the demons, basically, was the practice. It's a Tibetan chud practice. Um, and she'd been through a really hard time in the last few years. Her husband, who she adored, they had a wonderful marriage and had built this beautiful Tibetan center in Colorado, died very suddenly a few years ago. And she went for about a year to Tibet on pilgrimage to try and remake her life and then came back and and then went again to do some practice. She said, kind of looking for herself after her life had sort of been so in a kind of shocking way. She had planned to be married and do this whole, you know, journey together, had, had uh, been taken apart. And she went to see a famous teacher, the, the 17th Karmapa, who suggested since she was doing the practices of facing change and death, um, that she go to the ten difficult places, which meant that she did a pilgrimage in Nepal and Sikkim and parts of India to charnel grounds. She went with a couple of friends 
and she would go and put on her llama robes, and she's quite, she looks, she does the llama part really well. She looks very good with it. And sit there with her beads and her robes and so forth, alone in the charnel grounds. And the charnel grounds are, are serious. You know, there's blood and body parts and dogs that run around where the bodies haven't burned completely, and sit all night and meditate and offer herself the practice that she was doing was to sit and say, if, if, if anything difficult arises, I offer my body and spirit that something good will come of it, that, that my being and my spirit will bring compassion to this world no matter what. She said, it was one thing to sit in America and teach this practice, you know, in Colorado in this nice Tibetan temple that's got indoor heating and, you know, all the kind of comforts of sort of the concierge practice of the U.S., right? <laughs> And it was another, and then she said, one night I was in this charnel ground and, and this guy came with a machete and he was chopping things up and I'm there and it's dark and I'm sitting. And she said, and the level of fear was so intense and because of it, the practice got so deep because I, I had resolved I wasn't going to get up, plus which I couldn't run, there was nothing else to do. So I had to say, all right, I surrender, I offer myself, she said, and then I just got filled with the joy of freedom of not holding on to a single thing. Or another night in a different charnel ground below the cliff where they would throw bodies off and then collect them and burn them. She said, and there were some drunken people up at the top who were throwing glass bottles off and they were exploding in the charnel ground and she's sitting there trying to do her meditation. Um, and it was really interesting having the conversation. I was both horrified and inspired at the same time in some way. And I've done practice like that, not in India, but in Thailand and Laos and sitting in the forest and charnel grounds. Um, but what, I, what, what was inspiring really was the, was the depth of her dedication. Um, yes, there was really deep understanding that came. She seemed freer. Um, and having known her for all these years, for 40 years, she seemed softer less um, judgmental of herself or less expecting the world to be some particular way. The world is the way it is, of joy and sorrow and praise and blame and gain and loss. And the, the point isn't to make the world different, although you have to offer what you can to um, stop injustice, to feed those who are hungry, to, to serve the world. But it's not your job to change the world, to fix it it still will have praise and blame and gain and loss and pleasure and pain. It's just woven that way. And there was some very deep freedom and compassion. She just seemed wiser because of it. Um, and it made me appreciate, like these stories that I started to read, the Plowing Sutra and the story of Frog and Toad, the kind of dedication over time that we offer the tending that's asked of us, that we offer to the practices of compassion and care, inwardly and outwardly, that allow us to become the most beautiful human beings that we can, which is really what we're asked to do. You're not asked to be somebody else. Nobody's ever been like you. You're as weird as they come, <laughs> and you're unique. The universe has never produced anybody quite like you before. But in your weirdness, you're asked to become magnificent, really. 
you know, and magnificent with your gifts that you develop in yourself. In Zen, they say there are only two things. You sit and you sweep the garden, and it doesn't matter how big the garden is. That is to say, you sit to find a place of stillness and inner freedom and very deep compassion and forgiveness. And then you go out and you tend the garden of the world and you offer what you have. If someone's hungry, you feed them. If there's injustice, you respond to it. Whatever it is that is in front of you shows you what's needed to be done. And it's not because you're some great person doing it, but because it's family. It's just us together. And I think of that statement from Martin Luther King where he said something like, the arc of history may be long, but it bends toward justice. And I've been involved recently with some of the events and in Burma as that country is be trying to become democratic. And what happened there is that with the lifting of the horrible military dictatorship of the last half a century, then all the buried, unfinished ethnic conflicts and religious conflicts have started to surface, um, as happens in other places. It happened in Yugoslavia, you know, or it happens in between the Shia and the Sunnis and the Alawites in Syria and so forth. Um, and so Burma is trying to figure out how to live with this religious diversity and ethnic diversity that's never really been addressed. Um, and some of it is very painful because there's recently been a lot of anti-Muslim violence and some Buddhist monks fomenting it in parts of Burma and violence toward other ethnic groups and so forth. Um, but also quite recently there has been a whole movement of young people who are printing t-shirts that say there will be no r racial or religious conflict because of me. And they're passing them out by the thousands in Burma, you know. Um, and cer certain of the best of the Buddhist elders are reminding the culture of their history of tolerance and dignity. Um, and that that's really at the root of what makes a, a wise society. And when President Obama went there in January or whenever it was to meet with Aung San Suu Kyi and the government and stood up and said, I'm, I'm moved by the timeless ideal of metta, of loving kindness that we as human beings can dedicate ourselves to live together with compassion and care for one another. And then he said, and I come from a country where not that long ago I would not have been allowed to vote or to be a full citizen because of the color of my skin. And we're still working on that project, you know, from a, for, for 200 years of, from this history to try to make uh, a, a place of real justice for everyone. So I come here to encourage you in the same project for your, for your people. Um, and so, yes, there's tremendous difficulty and it's not clear what will happen in Burma or Egypt or lots of other places, or the U.S. for that matter. <laughs> Um, but there's something hopeful. And I read in the New York Times today an article, most of you know about that Pakistani girl Malala who was shot because she was going to school, um, that there's now a movement 
partly started from Malala of a million Pakistani girls who are like the Arab Spring, who are starting to empower themselves. They're not going to get it from the government or from the men. You know that already, the women. You understand that. It doesn't come that way. And they're saying things like, now they can't stop us. If we have to hide our school books under our dresses, we will. But they can't stop us from going to school, and we are not afraid. We are going to educate ourselves. And it's uh, this huge movement of a, of a million schoolgirls doing this. Um, when the Dalai Lama wakes up in the morning, one of his practices is to recite the bodhisattva vows, um, and the version that he uses is from Shanti Deva, this wonderful Buddhist sage and poet, that says, may I be a raft or a bridge or a boat to help those cross the flood. May I be a resting place for the weary. May I be medicine for the sick. May I be food for the hungry. May I be a lamp um, in the dark night to illuminate the path. Um, May I offer myself for as long as earth and sky and sun and moon and stars endure and longer until all beings together can awaken to the great freedom that is their true nature. Something like that, some little vow like that, right? (laughs) And um, what's most compelling about it is there's like no time limit on it. Okay, well, I'll do this for a few years and then maybe I'll get a new job or something like that. I'll move to another place or take my resume and see if they want the Dalai Lama to work somewhere else or something like that. It's as long as earth and sky and sun and moon uh, exist and beyond. Um, And what it is, it, it says that you set the compass of the heart to that which really matters in the deepest way in this mysterious human life you've been given. And you meditate as he does in the morning. You quiet the mind and bring a sense of compassion and openness to the heart. And then you listen. Listen both how to tend your own life, because you know, I, I know too many burned out activists who are doing it out of you know, reactivity and it didn't work for the long term. Um, you learn how to make yourself what you want the world to be. You learn how to somehow find the center of forgiveness and justice and, and peace and well-being in yourself. And then you get up from that stillness and you express yourself in the world, which is your gift. And people do it in every different way. It can be through music and art and dance and business and technology and parenting and literally gardening. And You will each find your own way. But here you are, you've got this mysterious human incarnation. And when you come to meditate in spiritual practice, yes, there's something about reducing stress, right, or so forth. That's all right. It's, it has its value, especially in a pretty stressful, speedy society. But that's just the beginning. Um, really, it's much more about quieting yourself so that you can ask what matters. Who am I? How do I live with this 
mysterious life I've been given and what will fulfill this incarnation, this mysterious gift of life. And when you stop and listen, there's a sense of connecting, as Frog and Toad's little story points to, to some greater rhythm, um, trusting something much bigger than your small sense of self. Pablo Neruda, the great poet, says, you can pick all the flowers, but you can't stop the spring. And there's some way in which as you quiet, you can also feel that there's a wellspring of life force itself that is who you are, that you're a part of. Um, The same force that pushes the, you know, green sprouts through the cracks in the sidewalk in in an unstoppable way. Um, And that you're part of that mystery and that you have the right to offer yourself beautifully to the world. The point isn't so much to perfect yourself. I don't mean you're going to, you know, make your body free of disease. Yes, you want to take care of it as best you can, but Aging, sickness, and death are also part of the game in incarnation. Anybody not have that? Raise your hand. You can have your $8 back, right? It's just part of him. It's just having a body. The body isn't who you are. You get it. You get to use it. So you want to use it well. So it's not to that. And you're not going to perfect your personality. You already know that. Hopeless, right? And you're not really going somewhere. Where you are is where you're going. You're going to the eternal present. The point is not the future of humanity, but the presence of eternity. And there's something in Buddhist teaching that's called pure perception. Nelson Mandela talked about it at one point where he said, it never hurts to see the good in someone. They often act the better because of it. Um, Pure perception is to see that even in the difficulty of the world, there's a place to plant a seed of forgiveness or a seed of justice, or a seed of attention, or a seed of truthfulness, both outwardly and within your own heart. O nobly born, begin the Buddhist texts. Do not forget who you really are. Do not forget your fundamental dignity and your fundamental capacity for freedom, wherever you find yourself. And tend that. You'll forget it, but don't forget it. Remember it. Tend it like you would tend your garden, the garden of your own heart. Because it's available to you anytime. As Viktor Frankl wrote, he said, We who lived through the concentration camps can remember those who walked through the huts comforting others and giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but their very existence proves the last and greatest of human freedoms, the freedom to choose your spirit, irrespective of the circumstance. They can put your body in prison, but no one can imprison your spirit. And so to meditate, yes, you quiet the mind, yes, you open the heart, rest in loving awareness, is to really find and sense that freedom of spirit and then tend it, and tend to what wants to grow and open and blossom through your life. Now, 
As you do, guess what will happen? Trouble. <laughs> you already know that, right? It's just how it works. Obstacles, you could call it what you want, you know? Here's the Buddha saying, faith and mindfulness is the seed, but then what about weeds, insect, drought, right? All that happens too when you're plowing. So you plant your seeds, and then as the bodhisattva, you know, may I be a bridge, may I be medicine, may I be food, you plant your seeds, you, you face yourself in the direction of dignity and compassion, connecting that with yourself, and then you take it a day at a time, a step at a time, a moment at a time. In business, obstacles, not enough capital, key employees quit, the market changes, competition becomes stiffer, your supplier gets bought up, entrance rates rise, right? What do you do? Okay, I give up. doesn't work that way. You meet obstacles and you bring attention and care to them and find your way. Parenting. When they're really little, they just put everything in their mouth. When they're a little older, they take the car and run it into things, especially if they're <laughs> boys, right? Or they, you know, whatever they go through. <laughs> you who have children, you know all about it, right? You have to socialize them so they don't hit each other with blocks, right? And then they hurt themselves when they're playing sports or riding their bicycle or whatever, and then they go through puberty and it's all over, right? <laughs> and they have to deal with independence and sexuality and all those things that you had to deal with. And the point isn't that they don't go through that, but that it becomes the practice of tending your garden with love, with patience, with your own inner sense of dignity, and then somehow there's a communing of that with what you tend. In love relationships, it's the same. You know, there are the good days, and then there are the days where one of you doesn't want to be the grown-up, basically. It's your turn to be the grown-up. <laughs> or where all the wounding and the stuff from the past comes up and gets triggered, and you have to breathe and be patient and compassionate. And then you come to meditation, it's exactly the same thing. I mean, it's why we call it practice. You sit, and like the cartoon in The New Yorker that showed the car going across the great you know, Utah desert with the billboard that said, your own tedious thoughts next 200 miles, right? <laughs> kind of like meditation, right? There are, the mind secretes all the thoughts and you just notice it, you know, or your loneliness comes. And I think it's the poet Hafiz who says, don't surrender your loneliness so quickly. You know, let it season you like few ingredients can. Let it cut more deeply. And let the loneliness take you to a place of being solitary and alone and free in that aloneness, which is both connected to the world and therefore unafraid of losing it. Don't run from it. Otherwise, if you're, you get a little bored or a little lonely or sad or all the things that come, all the unfinished things, and you run away from it, what do you do at home? You open the refrigerator, right? Or you go online or something to distract yourself. You can't be with yourself. So to sit in meditation is to take this seat halfway between heaven and earth and say, I will be here in the fullness of this human incarnation and hold it with wakefulness and loving awareness and compassion. Yes. And it changes you somehow. Not 
again, by changing your personality or something. But I think some years ago, Thich Nhat Hanh, wonderful Vietnamese Zen master, came here to teach a couple times or a few times. And uh, there were like 3,000 people on the hillside here, and we built a stage, and um, everybody was there, and someone was instructing them and following their breath or eating an apple mindfully. And then it was time for the Thich Nhat Hanh, the Zen master, to come. And I remember watching him walk up the road, and Thich Nhat Hanh, um, well, Richard Baker Roshi, who was the abbot at San Francisco Zen Center when Thich Nhat Hanh first came to San Francisco, said, described Thich Nhat Hanh, he said, he's a cross um, between a cloud, a snail, and a piece of heavy machinery, <laughs> which I thought was a great poetic description, because he's quite slow in a certain way, but also completely unstoppable. So he walked up the road with this kind of deliberate and beautiful mindfulness with each step, and you could feel all 3,000 people go, like a breath go out. This is what it looks like to just take a step and just be exactly where you are, to eat when you eat and step when you step and be so fully present. And it was gorgeous. It was absolutely gorgeous. And so it's not that you're trying to be someone else, somewhere else, but that you can bring yourself so fully into the present, tending what's present with loving awareness, with mindfulness in some you know, deep way, which is what your meditation practice starts to teach you. Now, it's also important that it not be idealistic. So Zen Master Sansanim, another great Korean teacher who was a teacher and friend of mine, had a big center in Providence. He was actually an interesting character because he came from this quite famous Korean lineage of many Zen masters over a long time. and. Um, he decided to come and teach in the West, and somebody sent him a ticket, and he ended up in Providence, Rhode Island, which is where his main center was started, and then he's got 50 other centers that he sort of developed from before he died. But anyway, um, and he didn't really know how to teach Zen or speak very much English, so he got a job in a laundromat um, near Brown University, and he would work in the laundromat fixing the machines and helping people with things and stuff like that. And then the students would come in, and there he was in his gray Zen robes, and he would say things like, oh, you, you clean, you must clean inside as well as outside. Yeah, you know, very, very simple. Not a lot of language, but very, very simple. And they got really intrigued. Who is this guy in the gray robes in the laundromat? And pretty soon they started to listen to him, and he said, oh, you come over, I show you how to clean, you know, inside, and started this whole big Zen community. But anyway... They say in Zen, um, you know, when you walk, just walk, and when you eat, just eat, and when you sit, just sit, and to really be fully present where you are. But one morning, Sansanim was sitting in his Zen center, eating his morning rice gruel or whatever they serve for breakfast, and reading the morning paper. And one of his students had the temerity to complain and say, Master, you tell us when we eat, just eat, you know, or when we walk, just walk. And here you are eating and reading, you know. This doesn't seem like the Zen you're teaching us. 
and he looked up and he said, when you eat and read, just eat and read. <laughs> because it's, it's also really easy to take your ideas of the garden or of spiritual practice and use it to judge yourself and say, I'm not good enough and this is the way I'm, and, and create some whole new ideal of perfection that's sort of like the house and gardens variety of what your garden's <laughs> going to look like. And it just doesn't look that way. Even for house and gardens, it only looks that way on that day with the proper lighting and a really classy photographer and bringing in some special plants that you put in for that moment. Yeah, it looks really good, right? The next day, it's not that it doesn't work that way. Um, so it's not about that kind of perfection. It's not about the outer perfection. It's really the perfection of presence and dignity and love that matter. So in Sansanim's lineage, his great grand teacher said this, just to make it a little tougher, because this now makes it sound a little too easy, he says. We'll go back to Sultrim sitting in the charnel grounds. He says, don't wish for perfect health. In perfect health, there arises greed and wanting. So the masters say, make good medicine from the suffering of your sickness. How's that? You know, take what your body is offering you and make the medicine of courage and compassion. Don't hope for a life without problems. An easy life results in a judgmental and lazy mind. So the masters say, accept the anxieties and difficulties of this very life you've been given. Don't expect your practice to be clear of obstacles. Without hindrances, the mind that seeks enlightenment will burn out. So the masters say, attain deliverance in the midst of your disturbances. Don't expect to practice hard and not experience the weird. That's what it says. <laughs> hard practice that evades the unknown makes for weak commitment. So the masters say, help hard practice by befriending every demon that arises. And it kind of goes on like this. You don't, don't expect to finish doing things easily. If you happen to acquire something easily, the will is made weaker. So the masters say, try again to complete what you are doing and do it fully each time. It goes on. So it's really an admonition or an invitation to a kind of courage. And any decent gardener knows this. You don't just plant, you know, you might not have to sing and, you know, read poems to your seeds, but you do have to weed and you do have to water and you do have to, you know, fertilize and you do have to tend. And if you do, something beautiful happens. And to meditate is to tend your own heart in that same way. And it doesn't mean to be judgmental about it, but the weeding part is to say, these repetitive thoughts, they don't actually have my best interest in mind. I think I'll let those ones go. I'm not going to believe, uh, thank you for your opinion. You know, you can acknowledge them. There's the judging mind, thank you. That's the judging mind. And then come back and say, no, let me rest in compassion. Or this problem with my body, that I've been trying to avoid or frightened of or something, let me see if I can actually pay attention with a loving awareness, without so much judgment, notice the fear that arises, tend to that with the same compassion, and really be respectful of what the body is asking. So that you take your very life as the field of practice, first this way, and then in the 
relationships in your family, in your love relationship, in the schools, the communities, and the body politic, in the world that you know you are a part of. When you begin to sit quietly, one of the things that you notice is all the ideas that come about whether you're doing it right, who you're supposed to be, how it's supposed to happen. As I said, you don't want to be idealistic about it. Um, but there it is. You're sitting there and, you know, what arises is the judging mind or the fear and anxiety or the self-doubt or the trauma from the past my mother never loved me, you know, maybe it's even true at some point, okay, but you can be awfully loyal to your suffering and kind of keep it going. Um, and there turns out, if you pay careful attention, what you notice is that almost all of this is just a story. There you are sitting, minding your own business, and then the storytelling machine says, you know, Metro Goldwyn Mayer Fox is going to put on a production about your life, your childhood, or your relationship, or your body, and we're going to put it in living color, right, and scare you, you know, or judge you, or whatever. And it really, it's quite amazing what it does. So after one of the retreats that uh, we have every year down in the desert in Yucca Valley for the last 36 years, these wonderful this wonderful place out in the desert in Yucca Valley in Joshua Tree. One of the retreatants who was quite, it had been her first 10-day retreat, and she was quite pleased to have gone through that whole retreat process and gotten very still and quiet. She went to the airport, Palm Spring Airport, to fly out to back to wherever it was that she lived in Minnesota, I think. And then she wrote me this letter after about something had happened. Said so she got to the airport went into the little airport shop, shop, got some magazine to read on the plane, and then got a bag of cookies. And she went into the boarding gate area and sat down. There's a couple of seats and then one of those little kind of tables and then a couple more seats. You know how it is in the airport. And she put down her bag and her reading and sat for a moment and then picked up her reading and her, you know, and then looked over where she'd put her stuff down and the guy sitting on the other side of the table opened the bag of cookies and took one out. <laughs> While she'd been meditating, so she just noticed, hmm, this is pretty weird, you know, okay. But she just looked, and he, she looked at him, and he smiled, and he offered her. He said, here, you want one? So she took one, and then he took one. I said, okay, this guy's a little... And then he ate another one, and... She ate one, there were, you know, like half a dozen cookies in there. It was like one left. He held it up. Okay, you want this one? <laughs> she ate it. So it's like, okay, it's pretty weird. All these thoughts about this. Finally, they announce her plane. She gets on, takes her seat, puts her purse underneath the seat. And as she's getting herself settled, she opens her bag. And in it, she sees her bag of cookies. <laughs> which were the same kind of cookies. And she'd had this whole big story, you know, where she's taking the cookies, and whose cookies are they really, you know? 
So the mind is actually quite unreliable. And it has no pride. And all you can do is remember, like the Dalai Lama's vows, that in this moment, let me plant a seed of compassion. In this moment, let me plead, plant a seed of dignity and presence. In this moment, let me use whatever it is, the success or the failure, as a place to do this practice, which is why you quiet yourself in meditation, so you have that capacity and that presence to do it. Kathy Sneed is a woman who started in the San Francisco jail 20-some years ago. She went to visit some folks in the jail, and of course our American prison system is horrible, the prison industrial complex. We have more people in, behind bars locked in these cages. It's both like a, almost a slave system, a poverty, racist poverty prisons. It's also the default mental hospitals of our society now. It's really um, something quite terrible. Um, anyway, so she went in to the county jail, saw people in there languishing in certain ways as people do, but there had been a big farm as part of the San Francisco County Jail. In the old days, both some of the prisons and some of the mental hospitals when they still existed had farms where people would grow food. And so she decided to start a garden project. And she went out and she got uh, hoes and rakes and seeds and things like that um, gifted to her from various places. And they had an old greenhouse, and she invited some of the people who were in prison there to come in and start to plant things. And for a number of them, it became incredibly important. You know, they'd have their row, they'd plant, they'd water, they'd do all that. And it was like they could do something positive with their life and their time. It became so important. She, she writes about how there was this great big, you know, guy who'd done all the working out with weights like a lot of guys do in prison and all the tattoos and stuff. And, you know, she was showing someone, someone around near where he was working. He said, now don't step on my babies, you know, on my little, little plants. Be really careful. In fact... It got so important for some of these guys that when they would get out, they would commit some minor crime to get sent back in because they want to get back to their garden. So then she had to start the neighborhood garden project so they had something to go to when they got out. But we all want to do this. And in some way, the practices of loving kindness or compassion or forgiveness or just returning to the breath with this breath calming the body with this breath quieting the mind, is the tending of your garden, the garden of your heart, and the garden of your life. It's pretty mysterious. From the Dhammapada, the Buddha says, when a traveler at last comes home from a far journey, with what gladness their family and friends receive them. Even so shall your good deeds welcome you like friends. And, and with what rejoicing now and even at the end of your life. And again, it's of the 
planting of the seeds so that you feel that the day, the moment, this, this unrepeatable moment was met with a sense, a spirit of freedom and a spirit of presence and a spirit of care. Thoreau says, though I do not believe that a plant will spring up where no seed has been, I have great faith in a seed. Convince me you have a seed there and I'm prepared to expect miracles. We don't control a lot of things, really. I mean, you can choose to a certain extent where you live or work, but not completely, as you know. And you certainly can't choose what the people around you do and how they'll behave. In fact, if you notice when you sit, you can't even choose very much what your own mind does. Stop thinking, you tell it. Does it work? Does it listen? I don't want to feel these feelings. Does it listen? But what you do get to choose is the spirit with which you receive this mystery that opens for you. Um, and that spirit is everything. Really, it's, it's amazing. Um, The Ninth Symphony of Beethoven premiered on May 17, 1924 in the great opera house in Vienna. It was Beethoven's first stage appearance in 12 years and the whole of the city was excited and the theater crowded. And while Beethoven was conducting at center stage, the performance on the side was quietly being directed by Michael Umlauf, who was the Kapellmeister, the choirmeister. He instructed the singers and musicians to ignore Beethoven, who was totally deaf, and who was quickly turning the pages of his score and beating time for an orchestra that he could not hear. The violinist Joseph Bohm, who played that day, gives this account. Beethoven directed the piece himself. He stood before the lectern and gesticulated furiously. At times he rose, at other times he shrank to the ground. He moved as if he wanted to play all the instruments himself and sing for the whole chorus. At the end of the symphony, as the audience erupted into a standing ovation, Beethoven was still several measures off and conducting wildly. <laughs> it was the lead singer, the contralto, Caroline Unger, who walked over and gently turned the composer who couldn't really see what was going on, to face the cheering crowd and seeing their reception, yet hearing nothing, he stood there and began to weep. So you give yourself to life and you don't know the results. You can't know that. The results are not given to you. What your gift is, is to act with beauty or dignity 
or compassion, to plant those seeds, to act without attachment to the results because that's not in your hands. But you get to plant the seeds and your meditation and your training and your art in some way is to learn how to quiet and connect yourself to what really matters so that moment by moment you can live in this in this world in a magnificent way. Poem just to end. Lynn Park, who used to sit here, wrote this poem 25 years ago on early Monday night. She brought it up to me. And, well, I'll explain a little more about it. She says, take the time to meditate, to pray. It is the sweet oil that eases the hinge into the garden so the doorway can swing open. You can always go there. Consider yourself blessed. The stones that break your bones will build the altar of your love. And she had brittle bone disease, which meant that she broke bones 15 times when she was a kid, walking or riding or bike or whatever, they would just break. These stones which break your bones will build the altar of your love. Your home is the garden. Carry its odor hidden in you into the city. Suddenly your enemies will buy seed packets and fall to their knees to plant flowers in the dirt by the road. They'll call you friend and honor your passing among them. When asked who was that, they'll say, oh, that one's been beloved by us since before time began. This even from people who would have trampled over you to maintain their advantage. Give everything away except your garden, your worry, your fear, your small-mindedness. Your garden can never be taken from you. Take the time to meditate, to pray, It is the sweet oil that eases the hinge into the garden so the doorway can swing open easily. You can always go there. So that's it.
lovely to sit quietly on the spring evening. Before you go, just two more brief things first. Karen needs a ride back to Fairfax Carpool. Karen, where are you? 